Welcome to Built to Play, your dose game video game news and culture. I'm Armanek Bali. And I'm Daniel Rosen. This week, Amazon and Google are fighting it out in the Ouya Wars. Also, Microsoft got hacked by a five-year-old, Blizzard bans trans clans, and Game Jam explodes. We'll actually have Robin Arnott talking about that. Plus, we're talking about Lost Worlds. Frank Cifaldi talks about his website, Lost Levels, and his attempts to archive unreleased games. And Benjamin Rivers joins us to discuss adapting snow from a comic to a game and now a movie. It's all about changing mediums and changing neighborhoods. But before we get to all that, Amazon made an ouya, and that actually might be overstating it. Just a little bit. So, uh, last week, Amazon announced the Amazon Fire TV, which actually really sounds like Amazon has infused a television with the element of fire. <laughs> like, they figured out, just like, oh no, this TV's always on fire. <laughs> um, it's a $99 set-top box that streams video from apps like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. So, sort of like a Roku, or any one of kind of the Android-based set-top box you can put on top of your television. Or like a PS4, or, or an Xbox One, or an or Xbox, Xbox One, or an Apple TV, or an Ouya. Yeah, any of those things. It's $99, and um, it's going to have a quad-core CPU, 2 gigabytes of RAM, and 8 gigabytes of storage, and apparently games. Video games. Yeah. So I've heard. Um. They have games coming up from top places like Sega, Gameloft, Telltale, and Double Fine. Which... And EA, but and Double EA. Fine is weird. The really weird thing about that is that they put up that slide at their press conference, and it was just those five. Yeah. And that's it. It's not Activision... They're promising a thousand games by the end of the month. I mean, but can't. I mean, you could just have the Amazon App Store on it, and it would. That's still... basically what it is. Yeah, that's basically what they're saying. It basically can play anything on the App Store. Uh, they also have games coming in from Amazon Game Studios, which has turned from a publisher of Facebook games to a legitimately big name studio overnight, or at least that's what they're telling us. Yeah, they bought last uh, week. They bought Double Helix outright, but according to the company, they've also hired Kim Swift, of a designer of Portal. Uh, formerly of Airtight Games, and Clint Hawking, the designer of early Splinter Cell games and Far Cry 2. Uh, Just as a point, uh, Ouya also had a Kim Swift exclusive in Soul Fjord, which came out, and then she left Airtight, presumably to join Amazon and make Ouya 2. That seems like a weird... That seems more... I'm not really also that surprised that they hired her. I'm more surprised that Kim Swift is in the business of making games for... Uh, for Yeah, for Android This is a boxes. genre. This is a genre now. I, <laughs> I, I say people want to call these Android set-top boxes. I want to call them Ouyas. Ouyas. <laughs> the Ouya genre. Um... According to Amazon Games VP Mike Frazzini, developers were pitched not on large teams, but on work and not on working on tiny indie projects, but rather working on something in between, with five to thirty people teams working for one year to eighteen months. So they're calling for middle tier, low risk, you know, middle reward propositions, which is weird because we haven't seen that since like the PlayStation Two days. Like the last big middle tier game that we've been are are they're really coming out of like. Russia and like the yeah, Eastern the Metro, European the Metro games. Yeah, um, Borderlands One was sort of that. Um, Syndicate when Ravensoft was still a thing at Activision. Yeah, Ravensoft not was Syndicate. Like, um, what Singularity? Singularity. That was it. Yeah, Ra- well, Ravensoft was the kings of middle tier games. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean that's those are the last big ones. We yeah. haven't really seen anything like that in a Which while. Which is disappointing. I mean, we call for the return of it all the time because we don't need to spend a billion dollars in every game that comes out. Um, it's just surprising to see it from Amazon. Yeah. Uh, despite all this, Amazon says they aren't trying to compete with Microsoft and Sony, which is a lie. Well, I mean, I guess that's what the Ouya guys said, too. And yeah. they also, they're competing with Microsoft and Sony and phones, which is a bigger issue. Right. Um, uh, the system comes with a TV remote, but you can buy a controller for $40, and it looks like a 360 controller, but square-er. 
Um, the, it comes with a thousand Amazon coin. Not that I know what that does. We could have done the research, but honestly, it's who yeah. cares? Who cares? The, um, <laughs> <laughs> we're professionals. Exactly. Uh, from what I've heard, the controller is actually really hard to handle, though. Like it's a more, it's a bulkier and less precise Ouya controller. Yeah, I've also heard that the D-pad and the and the sticks aren't actually all that great. Yeah. Um, apparently, you can control games with the remote, but based on its uh, positioning, you can't actually turn it sideways, like playing you know NES games on a Wiimote, just because of the way the buttons are put into it. Yeah, I don't know. It it seems like a misguided attempt. I mean, Valve went through how many prototypes of that controller now? Yeah, we're on we're on like prototype four, and we finally have like what sticks? Yeah, well, not even we don't. Yeah, I don't know. We're not even sticks. We have we have buttons at yeah. the very least. Yeah, we'll get to sticks eventually. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is I don't know. This is this is it's weird. Um, one of the neat things I've I apparently about this is that uh, I mean, you can use a Fire TV smartphone app to play games. Uh, I, I was just looking at previews. Uh, apparently, playing, for example, Double Dragon in Minecraft is impossible because the controller's not that good. But uh, a game called Fibbage, which is from the You Don't Know Jack guys, uh-huh. uh, how it works is that it's sort of... Have you ever played Balderdash? You, it's like it makes up a fact, and you have to come up with a fake... Like basically, a lie word for that definition. Right. Uh, and basically, everybody just enters the word on their phone, so nobody can see who entered what. Oh, that's really neat. So I think that's sort of a really good place to take these set-top box kind of things, like smartphone-based party games, kind of multiplayer, multi-screen multiplayer. I mean, they've been trying to do that with like tablets, but the synchro- the problem has always been synchronization issues, like having the Scrabble keys on your um, phone and then having the tablet be the board. Exactly. Um, and I think that I think multiplayer based within phones and tablets has always been really frustrating for the same reason multiplayer on handhelds has been frustrating in that you don't really feel like you're playing together when you're separated by a screen so giving everybody sort of a communal screen to work together on uh i think that helps a lot even if you have your own individual one i think that kind of calls back to like legend of zelda four swords adventures yeah as a really weird origin point for this kind of game (laughs) game design well, like, one of the best parts of having a TV is that it's actually, like, a it's a fairly intimate experience to share a screen with someone. I mean, you mostly do that with friends or family. You don't you don't share a phone screen. That's pretty awkward. Yeah. Um, so, I'd, integrating the TV into this stuff, I mean, that could that could be really neat. I think I think that's where the future of this thing is and not this sort of uh, fly-by-night controller. Um, and, but that's not going to stop Amazon Game Studios. They are making a game called Sev Zero, which is a third-person wave-based shooter with tower defense elements that basically looks like Vanquish Effect. Okay, cool. Um, the Telltale is bringing over their current slate of adventure games, including the second season of The Walking Dead game, which, which is popular, but... I mean, th- that doesn't need, like, heavy controls or anything. Yeah. Uh, there's a version of Minecraft, of course. A version of Terraria, of course. Uh, pretty much EA has ever put out anything EA has ever put on Android. Sega has a mess of Sonic games on there. And, uh, as we mentioned, somebody put out Double Dragon Collection with uh, aerial fonts instead of the HUDs. Oh, okay. Because preservation is for suckers, I guess. <laughs> Uh, Amazon says there are currently 100 games on the, on the system with an average of $1.85 per purchase and promising $1,000 by the end of May. Okay, sure. I don't believe that at all, but, you know. I mean, th- I guess quantity over quality. But sure. Um, like, oh yeah, the Fire TV doesn't doesn't have perfect access to Google Play Store, but it seems like they're do- they're doing pretty easy port jobs. And unlike the Ouya, they're actually trying to build a first person library, first party library. Rather, first, yeah. Par- yeah, I wrote, first party. Uh, yeah, I wrote first person library in that they're literally first person shooters. <laughs> <laughs> well, like the. Ouya has been trying. I think their biggest problem was been exclusivity, and mm-hmm. I think the 
the, their exclusivity because they're they're contracting developers to make this stuff and then go elsewhere. Amazon literally owns these guys. Yeah, they're I, 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 I kind of want to play the next Kim Swift and Clint, Clint Hawking games, but now I can't because they're on Fire TV. So $99 seems like a relatively... That's how they get you, right? Yeah. Um, it's like how the Kindle works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essentially. Um I guess, well, I mean, Amazon really seems to be wanting to court that market that bought a 360 or PS3 because they just wanted to play games, not because they're really into playing games. Yeah, yeah. They, they just, just wanted, wanted play... an option. Exactly. So it's like, oh, I kind of like playing games sometimes, and $99 is a way easier purchase for them. I mean, that was kind of the appeal of the Wii. was just like, I just, I don't know, I, I play that one thing. Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, Wii Sports is neat, um, but I don't think there's anything that, that, is, that is that cool out of, uh, you know, the Fire TV. No, no. Nothing I mean, well, really stands out. Hopefully, I mean... Hopefully we'll see. Um, I don't think... At one point, apparently an Amazon executive literally said, um, this is not a game console. Yeah. But I think that... But but they spent more time talking about games than they did about video yeah. at their press conference. So... It, this is clearly an important event. Yeah. I mean, the market is ripe for $100 game consoles. That $400 yeah. box like market is starting to get a little stagnant, as we've seen. PS4 yeah. and Xbox One aren't really picking up as quickly as uh, I think the company expected them to. And it's weird, because if you look, feel the kind of atmosphere, it's almost like we've already decided on like what consoles are for what. Yeah. Like, if you, if you want shooters, I mean, really, then just pick up an Xbox One. It's not like... It doesn't feel like the PS4 are, and Xbox One are really competing like they used to no it, it feels a lot more like they're brothers in failure yeah <laughs> <laughs> um they, but, they, i mean they, they're sort of hands united into the breach and hoping they don't die yeah yeah they're not at each other's throats like they were back in 2007 at the very least i think ps4 has some has more positive press than xbox 4. oh absolutely and i think the ps4 is a much more attractive purchase as somebody who wants to you know play video games this coming from a person who bought a wii u a couple of months a couple of weeks ago like a chump <laughs> Um, but I think the PS4 is definitely, like, you know, in the hotspot. Like, if you want to play any indie game and you don't have a decent PC, PlayStation 4 is where it's at. If you want, you know, Sony's exclusives are never really the biggest selling points, but, you know, they're not bad by any means. Yeah, so, like, really where the Amazon Fire TV is going is in the old Wii slot. It's yeah. where w- people don't get what the Wii U is. It's selling for Nintendo fans. The, the Wii was basically like, I want to play Wii Sports, and if Amazon comes up with a Wii Sports, they'll capture the market. Right. Um, I kind of wish the Steam Box would take a similar tack. Yeah, that'd be smart. Instead $150, of... $200, instead of trying to make specialized, like, hyper-powerful PC hardware. To be fair, Amazon has a lot more money coming in than Steam does. Of course. Um, than, uh, and... Uh, uh, Valve does. Valve also is a much more weird, weird, weirder shaped company in terms of their hierarchy. So I don't know if they could manage something like this. Yeah, but imagine like a two hundred dollars set top box that had full access to a Steam library. Yeah, that would be really neat. That would, be that would be like I would be there day one. Well, that would, if they could get like subscription service, basically, like, you get access to like this library. Of yeah, games. Steam Flicks. Yeah, that'd be really. Uh, anyway, well, it's not. We're we're gonna start. <laughs> we're gonna start saying things that'll get us in trouble. Yeah. Um. Anyway. Yeah. Speaking of Ouya's, there's another one. Google. Yeah. Uh, according to leaked documents, um, their Google is planning to Ouya all over the place. Thanks, <laughs> Thank- <laughs> thanks Daniel. See, uh, you don't know. That's actually a. Uh, that's actually. That's actually. That's actually like highly erotic in some places. <laughs> Specifically in like the you know like tech startups in San Francisco, Ouya <laughs> all over the place means something very dirty. I can't say it on the air. Uh, uh, unlike the Google TV, <laughs> the, the previous efforts of creating a their previous episode created a TV streaming platform. Android TV is more like a set top box, like a Roku or a Kindle Fire. Hey, um, which you know 
the um, Google is hiring developers to make simple TV apps, even for movies, TV, music, and of course games. Content be streamed from an Android phone or tablet. If it starts on your phone, you can pause and pick up on the TV, which is kind of like their um, their Chrome thing that they recently, yeah Chromecast Chromecast that they've recently done. Um, the remote control has a four way D pad and presumably be able to play anything off the Google Play Store. Uh, interestingly enough, that their documents suggest there won't be any cameras, NFC, or touchscreen support. Nothing but the remote and TV, which is actually probably a really good idea. Yeah, for yeah. gameplay at least. The uh, I'm I'm it, everyone's moving because Amazon Amazon Apple. Amazon made made the first move and now Apple is going to move in. It's the same reason why people have started to get into wearables. Yeah. Wearables got super hot when there were rumors that Apple was making something, and um, Google is making a wearable as well. Yeah. So well, Google made Google Glass. And yeah, that but was they're making. Funny. I think they're, they're also working on some sort of watch. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's working on some sort of watch. The um. Can't, I can't wait to get back to the era of calculator watches. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe I'm going to do so much math on my wrist. Maybe this will validate Dick Tracy. <laughs> Th- that'll be the long-term you know, effect. I, heard, I saw Flattop. He was first in line to buy an Amazon, uh, Kindle Fire. <laughs> <laughs> Thought that there was a line. It was all online. But, you know, you know Flattop's not the smart, brightest crayon in the, in the box. <laughs> um, yeah, Apple's getting ready to move. But this is this is a war of ouyas. Yeah, yeah. The um, I mean, You know what? As long as it runs Minecraft, I'm sure it'll be fine. Yeah, of course. But... <laughs> It's it's really insane to think that we are starting to get things with, you know, mid-tier console-level capability. Like, the games that Amazon was showing off as their Amazon Game Studio things looked, you know, 360 oh. quality. Yeah, they're not bad. Middle-of-the-road 360 quality. And an iPad can run XCOM. Yeah, yeah. So, we're not... I don't think it's that much of a stretch to believe that an Apple TV 2 could run, like, you know, Mass Effect or something. That'd be really neat. I would like to see something on that level coming out. Um, it's, it's interesting that we're about to see a huge conflict on the... Uh, on this on this scale of the market, um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how Sony and Microsoft then respond to to this market. I think because this does mean that I mean lower prices mean a better access to overall people who just want to try out games. Mm-hmm. Um, four hundred bucks is still going to be expensive no matter who you are. Exactly. You know, I, I think a ninety nine dollar purchase for one of these things, and I presume the I don't know if the Apple one will come out at ninety nine dollars. Yeah, I can't imagine it will because it's Apple. But yeah. whatever that one comes out of, it'll sell better than any of these guys combined. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's going to really, that's going to scare Microsoft and Sony. All right. And moving on to Blizzard, in a recent patch, Diablo added a clan system. The clans are invite-only, are meant as smaller and private alternative to the game's existing community system. Also, you can name your clan whatever you want, as long as you don't want to name your clan anything involving the phrase, the, the word trans. The problem is pretty simple. Players who identify as trans can't title their clans to make them clearly safe spaces for trans players, um, but the fallout hasn't been um, all that simple. Yeah, so uh, if you take a look at the thread on Blizzard's forums, uh, people are promoting a petition to have the ban lifted, and that thread is home to all sorts of like really fantastically bigoted things that we probably shouldn't say on air Yeah. or ever. Um, my favorite one, personally, was the guy saying that having a clan dedicated to trans-identifying people was discriminatory to non-trans players and mad about the fact that he was straight and thus not allowed to join a gay gamer clan. That's, which is, we're not even going to Yeah, we're not going to, logic, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, hey, guys. The forum filters, uh, filters the prefix as well, so most of the discussion around the topic has uh, been ridiculous because no one can actually say it. Yeah, it's just sort of like, every time, it's sort of like Hubert, like it's just exclamation mark, at symbol, question mark, hashtag. It's... This is this is really silly and really stupid. And I don't understand why they did it. Yeah, no. I like what what could be, could it be that this this is trying to actually prevent? Like tr- I'm trying to think of like things 
trans related that would that not even like just as a prefix or a word what could it possibly be damaging my two guesses are either there was some sort of pre-existing um you know like ban word banalist software they're using because that happens a lot Mm -hmm. um but and and they didn't think to fix it or um somebody somebody either like or somebody you know with a grudge let it in you know purposefully or by accident or i don't know maybe... or they're trying to play big brother and they're trying to like you know maybe you guys won't get bashed if you don't call yourself that thing yeah don't trying to institute don't ask don't tell some kind yeah i don't know <laughs> diablo don't ask don't tell <laughs> um... i'm a demon <laughs> um also oh. worth mentioning the filter bans transcending clans transforming clans transylvanian clans among so others. if you want to make a vampire clan <laughs> sorry guys best sign this petition Speaking of things that are biting in security, it looks like the X- <laughs> Xbox has a massive security flaw. Hacked by a five-year-old. Uh, if you're a paranoid person secu- concerned that your Xbox security is shot and passwords mean nothing, you should stop listening because five-year-old Christopher Von Hassel was able to log onto his father's Xbox One account by entering an inter- incorrect password. Then when prompted to enter a new password, uh, just hit spacebar a bunch. <laughs> Seriously. You're kidding, right? No, 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 that's real. Oh. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know how did that slip by Microsoft security engineers. <laughs> Christopher was given four Xbox One games, fifty dollars, and a year worth of gold for his "quote unquote" hacking efforts. Also, he has been credited as a security researcher in a recent Xbox One patch, <laughs> which is amazing because you have to imagine that like half of that security team was fired. <laughs> you were beaten by a five-year-old. Um, according to his father, this is the third or fourth time this kid has found security <laughs> vulnerabilities. So not only is, a na- is he a natural-born hacker, but also he has a name that makes him sound like Victor Von Doom's more annoying cousin, <laughs> Christopher Von Hassel. I'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm gonna speculate in his other um, security vulnerabilities, and that's um, finding ways to access the cookie jar. Um, <laughs> he managed to break out of the the the, the, the playpen, and nobody knew where he went. Yes, um, he knows uh, the way to back to get into the back of the ice cream truck. And is probably a great uh, expert on how to sneak into his dad's bed. Uh, he already has an assassination plan for the Muffin Man. <laughs> you know the Muffin Man. All right. I knew uh, the Muffin Man. <laughs> Once. There's, there's no way to segue from that. So um, the last the last piece of news that we're going to be talking about is Game Jam. Um, last week, Maker's Gaming Vertical um, vertical thing. Polaris. Polaris. Yeah. I don't. What is a vertical? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> it's a. It's basically a production studio that stewarded a, a, this amazing, horrific train wreck of a game jam. Yeah, entitled Game Underscore Jam, uh, because we're in the Matrix again. Uh, they wanted to shoot a game jam and present it as a competition-style reality show, which isn't. Which you know, personally, I don't think that's a bad idea. No, no. I mean, like, and let's just quickly explain what a game jam is. Basically, limited time. You got to make a game within that time. There's usually a theme of some right. kind. Usually a weekend. Yeah. Or something of the sort. And no one sleeps or whatever. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, so they pitted game developers against makers YouTube stars in a competition of skill and Mountain Dew. The prizes up for grabs inc- included a year's worth of Dew and a free pass to the ID at Xbox program, which is already actually free. So. I I don't know. Like, this, these prizes were really silly. Yeah, and... you could also apparently win Dew Packs for individual challenges, and nobody got a Dew Pack, so nobody knows what the hell a Dew Pack is. <sighs> yeah, like... Th- 
this seems like the like they had been trying. They saw Jeff Keeley sitting next to that Mountain Dew and those Doritos, and in seeing that the Mac, there's this huge macro that went around. It was like, oh, this man looks like he's given up, depressed, and wants well, to die. Well, my favorite version of that is him with the Pope hat made yeah. of Dorito. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no audio version of that but there's no audio version of that but they saw that and saw how people saw that as a symbol of death and destruction and sadness and said okay we want to do that but on a video scale right we want to make that real um so the whole operation fell apart further uh when the on-site brand manager from pepsi mountain dew maddie lachem started issuing commands like no waters on no water on set and uh, visible Dew logos in every shot. By the way, uh, he actually asked him to drink water out of Mountain Dew cans. Empty uh, Mountain Dew cans. Uh, the, uh, they also weren't allowed coffee or anything like that. Yeah, um, you could only drink Dew yeah. on camera. Uh, he then started asking the women participating in the show about their chances, considering they were women. Uh, so, Zoe Quinn, who um, the designer of Depression Quest, and a fairly she's been fairly harassed online, and she her whole thing is... Um, kind of a lot, speaking out on a lot of kind of harassment that goes on online. Trader Fantastic game about David Goldblum. Yes. Or Jeff Goldblum, rather. That's actually, that, yeah, I, I invite everyone to play his Jeff Goldblum quest. Um, and she was repeatedly asked if some coders are at a disadvantage, if some because the female they, coders are at a disadvantage, yes. Yeah. And Adriel Wallach was asked if her team had an advantage because they had a pretty face. Um, <sighs> you can hang your head and cry or go in shame. I don't, like... I don't know. This is just an embarrassment. David, David, on a lesser note, David Reen was asked to remove his nail polish, and YouTuber John Traw was repeatedly prodded to say, say negative things about Zoe Quinn, which, I mean, shockingly enough, they managed not to do. Yeah, they were. I mean, apparently they were very civil. So, I mean, apparently the whole thing was remarkably civil until that uh, guy walked in yeah. and wrecked it. Uh, so everybody walked off set together and blew up a $400,000 operation. Uh, so, uh, that, yeah, it was kind of horrifying. To have a little bit more insight, we have a guest with us to talk about the end of Game Jam, Robin Arnott. I'm Robin Arnott, I'm an experimental indie game developer, I also make sound effects, and I was on the set of Game Jam. Robin is a sound designer who created the game Deep Sea. They asked him to be a part of Game Jam early on, and it, it, it sounded like a win-win situation. He could promote his new project Sound Self and maybe have some fun. Uh, it just seemed like a really exciting opportunity to me. I make really, really sort of weird stuff, or stuff that a lot of people would consider weird, and I saw it as an opportunity to uh, to put it in front of a much more mainstream audience and uh, and potentially reach new people. Um, so I uh, and it seemed like a fun way to do it, you know, like play and make with my friends. Um, and put us all uh, out there and, and represent what we do. It was just, it seemed pretty exciting. Um, but ultimately for me, I am, at the time, it was, it was like, I really, I really have to carefully consider how I spend my time right now because I, I don't have like, an unlimited amount of time to finish my game. And so it seemed like a really, really good PR opportunity to put um, my face and sound self and, and my weird game in front of a, a lot of people. Usually, we wouldn't have a male guest discuss sexist comments. That's pretty counterproductive, we admit. But it, we thought it would be important to have someone who was there so you could understand some of the stresses they were under. So let's start with the, con- the contract. The contract was really, it was a really bad contract. It was, and actually, the contract set the whole mood to a really bad start from the get-go because there was just some clauses in the contract that were, um, that would uh, require us to 
uh, be available to them whenever they like for things like ancillary shooting dates and ADR sessions and uh, you know any press opportunities that they wanted to take advantage of, we would have to participate whether we wanted to or not. So that was the kind of thing that was in the contract to begin with. There was also misrepresentation clauses, which would allow them to represent us however they see fit to to produce drama, right, rather than demonstrate what it is we do. There were um, – it, it was just a really ugly contract. Um, and we had to uh, – negotiate the shit out of it to to get it to a point where it was remotely acceptable um everybody else uh, had signed because it had gotten to a reasonably good point and i mean to their credit they they finally got the contract to a reasonable place but um adriel and i were waiting on some um sort of casual legal advice just to get some other eyes on a contract before before we'd sign and uh that hadn't happened yet so we just we got lucky or i got lucky anyway i don't think adriel would have signed it if uh, uh if our friend hadn't you know, reviewed it and been like, yeah, those look good. But, um, but yeah, we got lucky to not be under contract when this went down because it allows us to, to talk about it to the extent we have been. That contract is also why we couldn't have someone like Zoe Quinn on. They're still under no undisclosure agreements. Most of them can't actually talk about any of this. And the other person who didn't sign, Adriel, didn't return any of our messages. But the worst part, hands down, was the sexist comments coming out of Maddie Lachem. I, uh, it was really, really confusing. Um, because it's just not what you anticipate in that environment. Um, we weren't, none of us were really there to make a political statement, right? We were just there to have fun with our friends and, and, um, make a game together. Um, and so having it suddenly enter this very political space felt really uncomfortable. That was, that was my first response. Adriel, uh, was very offended, of course, um, I, uh, but my response was, you know, this guy is sort of clueless. Um, this is not an okay line of questioning. But, but you know, at the time, it just seemed like, okay, just won't engage. And, you know, maybe this guy's maybe this is a one-off. You know, maybe this guy just doesn't realize the, the gravity of what he's doing, you know. Um, and uh, if we make it clear to him that, yo, this isn't appropriate, then he'll back off. Um, but... I'm not. I'm not clear. I'm not clear on whether or not he spoke to the other teams before or after our teams. But the thing is, nobody answered that question. Nobody engaged with him because we all know it's a serious problem. We didn't want to give them good TV on either answering the question uh, in a way that would uh, be humiliating to um, the women on the team, or answering the question in a way that they could edit in at all. You know, it was just like not not giving them an answer. So it was really shocking. It was really shocking. And it wasn't until later in the day when we kind of all pieced the, put the pieces together that uh, I realized the, the extent of, you know, how uncomfortable he was making people and how the misogyny fit into that. Still, Robin didn't see the event as completely flawed. He'd actually like to try again someday. It was a really good idea to begin with, right? You know, you, you get artists doing what they do, you maybe make it a little bit competitive to, to add some drama to it for, to reach a wider audience. I mean, that's, we didn't expect this, I think, to be, you know, normal game jam. There was going to be some showmanship involved. Um, I think, I think the idea was a really good one. I think, um, they just, I, I think they just brought on some of the wrong attitudes coming on to how they should come on board treating us. And that's with, the lawyers that's with this guy maddie um it's also with some of the producers who i used to i used to 
I went to film school and I did some film production stuff and there's this attitude that the only thing that matters is the production and that doesn't work when you're, that attitude doesn't work when you're trying to uh, capture the uh, creative flow of artists and it's disingenuous and so I mean I don't think it's a bad idea I think it just have to be done more carefully. And do you feel like you got something out of the experience as a whole? Yes, I absolutely do. I really feel like I got to, um, I saw my friends true colors and their good colors. We came together. It was, it was really an opportunity, I think, to decide who we are. Um, and I, I like how we came out of it. We came out of it very strong. We came out of it stronger in our commitments to each other than we entered it. Um, we came out of it uh, with integrity. Um, and I don't think that this is a, I don't think this is just because, you know, you happen to have 11 people present who have particularly high integrity. I think, I think the standards for integrity in our community is, is a very high one. I think that you could have gotten almost any group of 11 independent developers there and the same thing would have happened. Um, I, so I feel, I feel confident. I feel confident, like as we're growing, as whatever indie is grows and that's, that's inevitable. We're growing. And as it grows, it's going to fracture, it's going to change. Um, and I think what I saw speaks very well to our capacity to handle that change and that pressure in a way that is uh, responsible and, uh, and with integrity. Robin Arnott is a sound designer and the creator of the ocean diving game Deep Sea. He's currently working on a new virtual reality game, Sound Self. You can find his stuff at soundselfthegame.com. Let's move on to Lost World, starting with some lost levels of forgotten games. Frank Cifaldi's mission is to save versions of games we've never seen, and find copies of games that were never released. My favorite example, and Frank's too, is Bioforce 8. No one knew much about it, but it was previewed in Nintendo Power Magazine, and it seemed to be an action game about an orangutan or something in underwear that like wrestled mutants. It was like a wrestling orangutan guy, uh, Bioforce Ape, and um, it was just one of those games that just disappeared. Like they showed it at one trade show ever. I guess you know there wasn't much interest in it, and it just it never shipped. It never nothing ever became of it. And then uh, years and years later on, on a collector's forum, someone had, had uh, posted like, hey, I found this this weird looking game. What is it? And he showed a picture of a cartridge with like a handmade label that said Bioforce Ape on it and some convincing screenshots and, and everyone freaked out. Right. And there was a. Uh, <laughs> so the people on the on the sort of collector side were like, whatever you do, don't dump the ROM. It will devalue your property. And and some of the like ROM kids were like, oh my god, you have to dump this for posterity right now for free. Everyone must play this. All data must be free. And um he kept posting screenshots like as as he was playing through the game, supposedly, and they got more and more ludicrous. Um, up to including like, hey guys, I found that that if you hold down and press the B button, he does this fart attack, 
and he showed a screenshot. Again, these were convincing screenshots of BioForce Ape farting and and like destroying the background tiles of the game. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he showed one one picture, uh, a couple screenshots of of uh, apparently a boss, this this butter monster, this monster made of butter. Uh, with Bioforce Ape punching him, saying, eat communism. Like, this stuff's obviously fake. Like, he's trolling everybody. Uh, but some people believed it and continued to believe it till the end. And it was hilarious. It was one of the, and, and I was kind of in on it early because I, I, I messaged the guy and he's like, look, you're too honest and, and nice. I can't lie to you. This is all a hoax. Don't tell anybody. But, like, it, it, it was already this sort of holy grail, unreleased, weird-looking game. And it just got even weirder because of this story. And everyone just assumed we would never find this thing. But uh, on Yahoo Auction Japan, in Japan, eBay's not big. Like, people use Yahoo for their auctions. Um a, a cartridge of Bioforce Apes showed up with just one crappy little screenshot. Um, and the opening bid was way too much money. And doing what I do and 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 seeing this uh, this hoax that got people really excited and and uh, well let's just say I was not gonna let that one go. <laughs> like, I, I and I guess the most ludicrous thing I ever did was when that popped up, I spent about a week calling and emailing and instant messaging everyone I know who had even a vague interest in preserving video game history and theoretically raising money in case I needed it because I would not let this one go. I mean, it was to the point where I was like, okay, I will only take your $50 if these 10 people uh, also have to pay before you and basically um, to make sure that Bioforce Ape wasn't lost to some collector's closet uh, I managed to raise in theory eleven thousand uh, dollars <laughs> that's insane no that I had that in me but damn it Bioforce Ape I wasn't gonna let that go um, luckily I didn't have to call on almost anybody in fact I think just two of us ended up going in on it. Um, I personally paid uh, $2,000 of my own money, which is the most I've ever spent on anything that wasn't a car, to make sure that uh, Bioforce Ape was preserved for prosperity. Uh, posterity, wow. Posterity is the word I was looking for there. Um, I'm distracted because I'm actually looking at the cartridge right now. There it is, my $2,000 video game. Um, and Bioforce Ape, you can download it now, and people love it. And and uh, I actually, uh, I was just talking about this earlier today. I, I put the ROM out for download on April 1st, uh, which confused a lot of people. Because it was already a hoax, right? So I, I posted this thing on April 1st going like, hey, download Bioforce Ape. And everyone's like, oh, it's a prank. Wait, this is really, is this real? Because <laughs> they were downloading it and playing it, and they're like, this is really good. What did you do? And, and the game was even weirder than the hoax, believe it or not. It was weirder than farting and breaking the game. It's, I, I have it on my, uh, my trophy shelf right next to my uh, Bubsy the Bobcat coffee mug. Okay, so how does any of this work? 
Um, in 2004, Frank Cifaldi was an editor at now-defunct games news website, OneUp.com. OneUp was great and all, but it was mostly about new games. What Frank loved were original Nintendo games. We're talking 8-bit nostalgia-dripping Mario-perfecting Nintendo Entertainment System. Back then, it looked like we were going to keep a lot of those old games thanks to ROMs. Cartridges were flimsy and broke all the time. ROMs are just the data, and data is eternal. All you need to do is copy the game ROM onto your PC and then share it. Once the game was on the internet, it was on forums all over the internet. But working at 1UP, he got to see a lot of early versions of games that were never completed. And those were much harder to collect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so when I got my computer in 1998, I was kind of a late bloomer with computers. Um, one of the first things I discovered was that I could I could emulate the Nintendo games that I played as a kid. And I started looking into, uh, well, not just rediscovering my childhood, but also sort of playing around with the stuff that maybe I'd heard about but I didn't play. And then I started discovering maybe the things that I hadn't heard about that are kind of interesting. And, and, and as I got further and further into emulation as, as sort of a hobby, I got into where these things came from, these files that I downloaded. And I discovered that people would actually track down the cartridges and, and through homemade devices, uh, rip the data off of them. We, we t- tend to call this ROM dumping. And I started, uh, getting involved i don't even remember how i got involved but i just kind of got involved with making sure that at least for the nintendo entertainment system the old 8-bit nintendo that all of the roms were uh dumped so i started by involving myself with uh some communities on the internet and tracking down the last few games that you couldn't at the time uh, download off the internet and play, at least, uh, you know, for the United States games. Frank's got a pretty stacked deck of unreleased games, but they've always been hard to collect. The games that they sold in stores are probably not in any real danger for quite a while of actually disappearing. Like, you're, you're always going to be able to find someone who owns a copy, even if it's really rare. Um, in fact, I mean, I dumped... You might have heard of a game called Stadium Events, which is the rarest NES game. Um, I dumped that one because I just found a collector who had one, and I and I borrowed it from him. And uh, also the Nintendo World Championships, if you guys know that one, uh, I dumped that one as well. I mean, that stuff, not so hard to find, but I started thinking about what would be difficult, and I came to the conclusion that if... I'm sort of putting in effort into preserving this stuff. I should go after the stuff that didn't actually ship. Um, and these things, at that time, some of the uh, bigger Nintendo collectors had uh, prototype cartridges. So these are things that are not made to be sold to anyone. They're made to just be maybe evaluated. Most of these are uh, sent to magazines to review, for example. And this is still a practice that happens. Um they would uh, they would take a cartridge, like a blank cartridge, and sort of temporarily burn a game onto it, send it out to, I don't know, Electronic Gaming Monthly, and, and have them review the game with that. Um, and in theory, they'd have to send it back. Oftentimes they didn't. So at, at the time, a lot of the uh, collectors had a lot of review copies of games that didn't ship. And I started sort of going after them, sort of working with collectors, um, and 
you know, just decided I should I should focus most of my efforts on making sure that these unreleased games are preserved because I felt they were in the most danger of disappearing. Sometimes it's about paying the right price or scaring away collectors, especially when it comes to popular games like Earthbound that just never came out here. Uh, if you're a video game collector, what rarer game is there than one that maybe only one copy exists of, right? So a game, like let's just use... Uh, what would be a well-known one for the Nintendo? Let's use Earthbound as an example. Earthbound, uh, which was also the name of a Super Nintendo game, uh, the, the the predecessor to that was planned for the NES here, but didn't come out. And if you're the owner of the only cartridge of Earthbound and no one else can play it, there's no image of it on the internet, the thing's worth a lot of money to, to private collectors. The moment that you dump the ROM and put it on the internet, the the value of that thing just plummets uh, because it's no longer one of a kind. Anyone can make one. Anyone could just download it and play it. Uh, so a lot of what I did was, was prying things away from collectors. Uh, typically, I hate to say it, by paying them off. It's like, okay, look, you invested in this thing. Um, I understand you don't want to devalue your property, so let's kind of find a middle ground and and you know when i started we we were we were actually very angry kids i i should say i mean i was young i was maybe 19 when i started doing this uh and we sort of saw collectors as the enemy and and what i started doing was actually seeing them as you know people with investments and and uh i found that these people were reasonable so um, I, I'd either pay off collectors or, or trade them other stuff. Uh, what else have I done over the years? I've I've basically beaten collectors to the punch and found these things before they did. I remember one of our biggest scores came from Spain. Uh, someone was listing prototype cartridges on eBay of of games that had shipped, but you know early versions of them, and I managed to call the guy in Spain and get him to look through all the stuff he had and started listing off titles and you know I, I anything i hadn't heard of i wrote down and i made him a decent offer on and you know i ended up with like five of our unreleased games that way but one question frank gets a lot is why bother most of these games weren't any good there's usually a pretty good reason why we don't see them frank says they're a part of history and we have no idea when we'll need them or why but we might and it it's good to have them then. We can't know. It's just impossible to know what's going to be considered important 50 years from now, or even 10 years from now, to be honest. Uh, we just don't know. So my stance is just save everything we can. And there's a game called California Raisins, which is a Nintendo game. Uh, it was a Capcom-published Nintendo game in, in the sort of Mega Man era. And it's very Mega Man-like game starring you know, the California Raisins. Uh, one of the first games we put, actually the first Lost Levels sort of spotlight game we ever did. And uh, I got an email from a woman who uh, thanked me because her brother had done the music for that game. And it's the only game he ever did music for. And, and he had passed very soon after that game. Uh, you know, after he'd done the work on the game, he passed away. And his sister had actually never heard his music before and, you know, wouldn't have if that thing was online. And yeah, that's not a, you know, 
that's not really answering your question. That's not benefiting society as much as it's benefiting her. But you know, you never know how these things might touch people. Um, but then the other the, the the other example I usually give people is a game called Sunman. It's another Nintendo game. Uh, it's about a, a a Superman knockoff superhero named Sunman. Um, and when I say knockoff, it's about as as knockoffy as you can get because this game actually started as a Superman game before they lost the license. Um, but Sunman was developed by Kenji Ino. It was one of his early games, and Kenji Ino developed games like D and D2, and he's uh, sort of this well-known, semi-famous game designer uh, with this uh, really interesting history that I recommend all of you look up. Uh, is kind of, kind of a kind of a rebel, kind of a cool guy, and he he passed, I believe, last year also. And you know, if if that game weren't online, the, the the Kenji Ino story as we know it wouldn't really be complete. That's everything. Thank you again so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Frank Cifaldi works at Other Ocean on on the ID at Xbox game hashtag IDARB. You can find Lost Levels at LostLevels.org. We don't just have to worry about losing virtual worlds, though. The real world changes all the time. And that change can be scary. You walk into a neighborhood every day, and one day, your usual coffee shop's gone. That's not so bad, but when your favorite bookstore closes and your Friday hangout gets a new owner... All of a sudden, your rent's double what it used to be, and you walk down the street and you don't even know where you are. That's what Benjamin Rivers saw happening on Queen Street West in downtown Toronto in 2008. Years ago now, you wrote... Uh, Snow, an interesting comic about Queen, uh, a girl named Dana on Queen Street West. How has Queen Street West changed since you first wrote that comic? Uh, if it was there was a percentage, it feels like it'd be about 75%. Uh, as an example, um, even like, most of the locations that were in the book are either not there anymore uh, or have totally changed hands or become something else. A few mainstays have been there, such as the Black Bolts and places like that. But uh, it actually has changed quite a bit. Almost, I think, uh, a year after the book came out, it felt like a different street. And now it's been several years, four years, but oh, more, more than that, six years? No. Math, I math years? Math years ago. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite a different place. He then adapted Snow into a 10-minute adventure game. You explore a corner of the street and see of Dana's favorite hangouts before they disappear in the comic. Well, when the game was made, it was actually just the first chapter that it was kind of a prequel to. That was all that had been officially released. So I didn't have the baggage of thinking about all the stuff that I was going to write in uh, for the you know the last three chapters. But I thought if there was going to be a little five-minute experience, which it ends up being, then trying to even go into most of what happens in the book was kind of silly. So what I focused on was was the character of Dana. So the idea being that, you know, it's a day in her life. It's a really quick experience. But you get to make a few choices and kind of see how her personality plays out and how the characters around her act. And what you see is if you play the little game and then start reading the book, you kind of immediately get that, oh, yeah, the way she is in the book... Um, kind of feeds off the way she was in the game. And when you meet other characters like Chen, the way they sort of chide her or talk to her is similar to the way it is in the game. So just as a real quick character introduction, uh, you know, I didn't need to go too too much in depth. With the, the game's interesting in the sense that there's no real sense of puzzle to it or anything like that. It's really just expo- experiencing this yeah. person's life for a day. Um, why do it that way? 
because uh, that was my first game ever and I was a terrible programmer. That's the answer I shouldn't give. Uh, but I actually really like sort of story-based and experiential-based games. And most, most of what I do now is all kind of based around those similar themes. But uh, the main thing was is that the point was to sort of get to know Dana and understand her character and, and sort of feel something towards her so that when you open up the first chapter of the book, you kind of had this idea of this person. And, you know, bogging that down with a lot of really video gamey sort of puzzle stuff didn't seem like the right idea at the time. Uh, and most people who played it seemed to really just like the fact that you got to live in this little tiny world, you know, as small as it was for a couple minutes. And it felt like something, even though it was really, really basic and stark. Uh, and, you know, again, any other puzzles would have just gotten in the way of that. I believe Destructoid called it American Splendor, by the way, of Monkey Island. I know. Yeah, that was amazing. What a what a great uh, what a great uh, quote to get right off the bat. I had some folks in, in Europe who actually said they use it as a teaching tool in some of their classes for just sort of basic narrative ideas and games, which I thought was pretty neat. But now, Ben's taking the whole thing a step further. Director Ryan Coldry stepped in to turn the comic into a movie. Ben and Ryan compared the process of adapting between the, these mediums and some of the advantages of each. What kind of relationship did you guys have prior to the film? We knew each other through the game scene and through just hanging out and stuff like that. But Well, we, we knew each other in the game scene, but I don't make games, nor do I have any business with games. It was um, right. a few years ago, I had a tiny little crappy blog. A boot play? A boot play. Oh, glad you remember the name. Um, and it was just, I was writing, meeting Canadian game makers, and it was just something to do in my off time between my nine to five. And I was at one of the early, early hand-eye society meetings, mm -hmm. like the second one, I think. And then I never went back because it was too cramped for me. But um, I met a bunch of people there, and the people I met there, I'm mostly still in touch with guys like you and Craig. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, it was, at, it was at that time yeah, when just yeah. kind of everyone was sort of coming everyone, out and realizing that other humans existed who yeah, were interested Toron in these things. Toronto hadn't really become like this big center on the independent gaming map yet, but it was on its way there. Like I played John Max Everyday Shooter mm -hmm. before he even had spoken to Sony. Yeah. And I played that and I was like, damn, this is going to be this is going to be huge when it gets released. Yeah. And it did pretty well. And from that point on, like he I think he kind of like set the tone for a lot of indie uh, game makers in Toronto. Yeah. And so that's kind of how we met. <laughs> well, Ryan, as the producer, um, you, how does seeing this comic as a film tra change the way you kind of have to approach the dramatic stu structure of the comic? Well, the film um, is very much going to be the, the same story as the comic. I haven't done a crazy twisting of the adaptation. We didn't... Um, we didn't do like a watch where you changed the whole ending, which, by the way, I thought the ending of the movie was better anyway. But um, no, pretty much I decided to adapt the story largely as is because I really like the story. I really like the the kind of strange three-act structure to things, the way um, things play out for Dana, and they play out very much unexpectedly. It's not, um, it's, it's not a read you get the first time around, I find, and I really enjoyed that. Um, so in terms of adapting it, one of the main things I just had to worry about was a don't try not to use Ben's comic as a storyboard, because um, what works in comic don't work in film. Mm -hmm. And b he had a lot of different beats that he had to follow in his comic because at the end of every page the the page has to end. Um, so he had different he he was emphasizing different things than I am planning on emphasizing. Mm -hmm. So aside from changing a lot of the uh, the vi the visuals to a point, some of the dialogue, um, the story is largely the same actually. 
Yeah. What's interesting, I think, is that, like, as I've seen things get filmed and seen certain scenes play out uh, in Ryan's version, it's, 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 you know, even though pacing and certain things are different, it's like all the little moments that I imagined, say, writing a particular scene and how it was going to be dramatic or how two characters were sort of, go, sort of uh, going to go back and forth. Uh, that all seems very true to the original thing, uh, original version, even though it looks different or it may seem different as I'm watching them sort of film things or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or thinking about what you're doing in terms of editing. But, you know, when I write a script, I always imagine every little scene, I imagine the characters talking to each other and that informs a lot of things. And to see them act, actors do it, I go, yeah, this is pretty weird. You know, actually, they that does kind of sound like how I imagine it, despite the fact that, yeah, there's obviously going to be differences. Yeah, Ben was on set a couple of times, and uh, he, he kind of looked like he was tripping out was watching, t- watching it happen. <laughs> totally, totally tripping out. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Similar to game design, there are a lot of costs associated and time associated with putting together a film. How's... How have you, how have things have to had to have changed just for the mere fact of well you can't have a hundred sets? Um, I don't need a hundred sets. Um, one of the reasons I decided to shoot snow, um, aside from loving the story, loving the characters, and loving the scenarios, is I was able to look at it from a budget perspective and say, yeah, I can actually shoot this. Um, I need the biggest thing I need to get are some locations, which we've gotten. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I've I've got the gear for the most part. Um, I'll rent the occasional little thing, but, you know, we've got the gear. We've, I've got the knowledge to use it. Um, I've got a lot of really awesome people working with me on crew. Very small crew at the same time, but they're all very multi-talented. We're all production assistants. So yeah. Um, and so in terms of the cost and how do I how did I figure that out is I chose the story by and large because of the costs. Um yeah, it could be done on a low to no budget, and it could be done right. Was the big thing. Mm-hmm. This, um, if uh, Ben had written like a sci-fi space opera, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that'd be nice Starts, to shoot. But <laughs> start saving some money for the next. Yeah, movie. yeah. Gonna... Well, next mo- the next movie, someone's going to give me the money, right? Exactly. <laughs> and then uh, we'll run with it that way. But that, that's how, in terms of getting the cost, it's chose it be partially because of the cost. Well, and we've been really lucky. Mm-hmm. Also, because luckily Queen Studio has entirely burnt down to the ground <laughs> uh, so far. But uh, see what happens when the movie comes out. Yeah, exactly. The riots, the riots from snow. Oh, man. But it, a lot of people who have let us use their stores or, or, or uh, storefronts or you know laundromats or all that stuff is pretty exciting because a lot of the locations we have been able to shoot at are the actual ones in the book. Or the closest proximity. Yeah. Like, the bookstore, like, we obviously couldn't shoot it. Aberlean Books was originally based on pages, which closed down, I think, after the second... Yeah, like, the day after the second volume came out. So we couldn't shoot at pages, nor can we shoot at the location where pages was, because it's not a bookstore anymore. Mm -hmm. But um, we did find a bookstore that has a very similar layout, um, and we're totally cool about us using the the space. Yeah. Um, We got the actual laundromat that the thing takes place in, in terms of Dana's apartment. It turns out Ben modeled it modeled it on his own apartment yeah. for the most part, so we shot in Ben's place. Yeah. Um, some rearranging is, of course, necessary, but otherwise, yeah, we've been very lucky. Um, lucky, but also I anticipated luck as well. So Yeah. Like you said, not a space opera. Lots of opportunities. Not a space opera, and it's a, sto- and it's a story that a lot of shops um, that we've been asking to use the space with can identify with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the bookstore we were shooting at, um, I'll tell you, we shot at Back of Phoenix, 
um, and they've moved locations like three or four times. Mm -hmm. Um, So they can totally understand what it's like for changing neighborhoods and to be affected by things you don't have full control over. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is locations like the story as well. So. Ben still lives near Queen Street West. It's been eight years since he first wrote a comic, but it looks like some things will never change. Do miss a lot of what the old Queen Street have. As much as I was ever around for sort of the old Queen Street, I've lived there now for eight or nine years. So it's been a you know you've seen quite a bit change. Um, but it you know if there's certain stores that I see like there's a hardware store that's in the book and a few other things, and I keep thinking. Oh man, if I walk past and there's a clothes sign on there, even if I only go there once every three months, I'm going to feel really bummed out because I do miss, I do miss the grittiness and some of the other elements that used to be there. I mean, I used to go to clubs and stuff on Queen in my, in my younger years and they're all shoppers drug marts or, or you know, like the basements of a Loblaws or something. So that's kind of sad to see. Um, what's your strongest memory of Queen Street West, would you say? The one that, you know what, the one that, it's not the strongest, but it's the one that comes to my head uh, immediately is uh, watching a woman in her SUV back up into a streetcar <laughs> and trying to, trying to do a three-pointer pretty quickly uh, and sort of watching everyone around her just kind of look in disbelief at how she thought this was going to work. And I remember just standing there watching going, yep, yeah, don't ever change, Queen Street. Don't ever change. Queen Street to me should always be this sort of uncomfortable clash between cultures where a bunch of people who want to come hang out and be super cool realize there's a whole bunch of people yelling obscenities on the other side of the street and they kind of just have to deal with each other. And to me, that's what Queen Street West is. I I hope that never changes. Benjamin Rivers, the game designer, working on the upcoming game, Alone With You. You can find his stuff at BenjaminRivers.com. Ryan Coldry is a director and hopes to release the Snow film sometime for the end of the year. You can find more details at SnowToronto.com. That's all for this week. I'm producer Armin Agbali. And I'm features editor Daniel Rosen. Built to Play was made with the help of... Robin Arnott. Frank Cifaldi. Benjamin Rivers. And... Ryan Coldry. Check out our website, builttoplay.ca. We're available on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. Leave us a review so we know how we're doing and more people can find the show. But don't leave us a negative review or we'll get that five-year-old to hack into your house and steal all of your food. We're usually in the air at the Scope at Ryerson every Saturday at 1 p.m. and we run every Monday and Thursday, also at 1 p.m. And we update the website every Sunday. Uh, but you can find us on Twitter at Built to Play and me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm Daniel underscore Rosen. And I'm not at PAX, but my ghost will be. And it really likes treats. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.